Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is the seventh episode of our Odyssey <laughs> of examining the saga of Ail Skatagrimson. And we're in person, live, together in one room. Rosencrandy and Gildan John right again. <laughs> Rosencrandy. Is that what you're going with? You got something better? I, mean, I kind of like that, but uh, what about uh, Butch Cassandy? And the John Dance Kid, huh? <laughs> not better. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, so we're here in Kalamazoo, Michigan for the International Congress on Medieval Studies for 2019. And it's mm-hmm. been, as usual, a whirlwind of a conference. Every year, I swear I'm going to take it a little bit easy the next year. <laughs> but then when you get here, it's it's just so hard not to get caught up in the energy of so many scholars working on so many amazing things. Yeah. And we get to talk to people who listen to the podcast, which is amazing. Definitely. Uh, but it, now it's time to take a break. Let's sit back. Let's relax. Spend an hour or two talking about Ale Saga. Oh, is is this a break? Because it this doesn't feel like a break, oh, especially now. No, 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 come on, Andy. You don't, you don't, you don't feel that cool ocean breeze in your hair, the wind billowing out your sails. Your ship cuts through the rough chop of the water, the sun warm <laughs> on your back as you row endlessly through the wine dark seas, the occasional screams as people flee from your blood flecked axe. Wow. Wow. The rosy-fingered dawn at my back. That's right. Yeah, yeah that doesn't sound like a break. It, it sounds like a lot of work, actually. Well, I mean, yes, but that's that's more or less what the Scott Grimsons are going to be doing in this episode. They are sailing all around the north of Europe. But uh, they're on the seas for a reason. Hmm. And to explain that reason, we need to explain what happened... Last time on... Ale Saga! Eil and his brother Thorolf set a course for Norway, escorting their foster sister Asgard to the home of her father Björn. Björn's come into an inheritance since his father kicked the bucket, but the Scott the Grimsons don't hang about to admire Björn's new digs. Thorolf's got plans to cultivate the favor of his old chum, the new king, Eric Bloodaxe. Thorolf has a lot of friends. Yes, he does. In Norway, Thorolf continues his work in ending the animosity between his family and the king. Having already deep-sixed the shattered axe his father tried to send along, Thorolf replaces it with a costly ship's sail, making Eric the happiest of campers. Thorolf then returns to Björn's house, where he proposes marriage to his lovely foster sister, Asgert. Björn gives the proposal a hearty thumbs up, and the wedding date is set. Everyone's delighted to see these two young almost-siblings tying the knot. Or almost everyone. Just as the wedding party is setting out, Eil comes down with a mysterious illness. The illness is a broken heart. Unbeknownst to all, Ale has long harbored a crush on Asgard. Once the wedding party sets off, Ale decides to join a tax collecting trip with Olvir, the foreman of Erthorir of Fjordana. Olvir's crew spends a night at the island farm of Atloy Bard, an agent of King Eric and Queen Gunild. Bard offers the visitors plain fare and keeps them in an outbuilding away from his main hall. Bard, it seems, is keeping a secret. Yes, but we're not. The secret is that King Eric and Queen Gunild are also visiting the farm to celebrate a religious ceremony. On learning of the outbuilding guests, Eric invites them to the party, inadvertently letting Bard's cat out of the bag about the rich foods and plentiful ale being served to his favorite guests. Ale, though quiet at first, is less than pleased. As the evening wears on, Olvir's men get dangerously drunk and begin vomiting all over the place. Oh dear. Late in the evening, Ale indirectly threatens the duplicitous Bard, and in retaliation, Queen Gunhild attempts to poison his drink. Ale skidoos with the help of some magic rune, but kills Bard before fleeing into the night. Despite the efforts of Eric's men, Ale escapes back to Earl Thorir's house, 
where Thorolf and Eyjolf decide it might be best to adjourn their Norway visit and put some distance between themselves and the angry royals. Excellent. I don't really know if we got across just how gross things got at Bard's house. There were there were a lot of fluids. I don't know that we need to revisit that in too much detail. That's to fair. Be honest with you, let's just leave it at that. Uh, let's just leave it that. If you can imagine a bodily fluid, someone probably slipped in a puddle of it at some point that night. <laughs> <That's> gross. <laughs> so uh, that's gross. that's where we are at this point. Uh, Norway yeah. is definitely not a safe place to be a Scotland Grimson right now. So the mm-hmm. brothers are setting sail for new lands. You know, uh, one of the things that's funny about staying at Kalamazoo, mm-hmm. you start to hear stories about, you know how we share bathrooms? Yeah. And oh, I know. Someone in the, in, the, in the group dorm. Now, John and I shared and everything was lovely, but uh, you hear stories of people coming back very late at night and heaving. <laughs> God. <laughs> in the toilets. I don't, think, uh, I don't think we need to share too much of this part of the story. Oh, well, I, thought we, I, I thought it was on. Our, on, our lives on are running a little too parallel a course to Ailes right now. <laughs> So this section of the saga is about a kind of boy's own adventure. Ail yeah. and Thorolf making their way around the North Sea, raiding and trading and generally having a grand old time. Well, yes, but it's not without its dangers. Well, what good adventure is? Yep. This is a pattern of action that we see over and over in the family sagas. A series of short stories, sometimes interconnected, sometimes only linked by their protagonist. The stories generally serve to build up the protagonist as a formidable person. Yeah, or, or sometimes to provide an opportunity to reveal the protagonist's character. Right. And sometimes yeah. to set the saga's main story against a recognizable historical context. Well, Ail's saga is going to do all three of those this time out. Aw, you, you got me a segue. You shouldn't have. I know you like them. In this episode, Eolf and Thorolf go a Viking. They raid and pillage throughout the Baltic Sea, eventually landing in Kurland. There, Eil stumbles into a clever trap set by the Coronians. Chained to a post in an outbuilding, Eil must find a way to free himself before his captor, a Viking Age version of Jigsaw, can sink his hooks into Eil's flesh. Literally. While escaping the Coronian farmhouse of horrors, Eil stumbles upon more prisoners, a Dane called Auki and his sons. After setting them free and getting some much-needed vengeance on his captors, Ail returns to his ship with a chest full of silver under his arm. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. But that's only the beginning. Thorolf and Ail continue raiding up the coast of modern-day Sweden as they make for home. Along the way, they sack the city of Lund and burn it to the ground. They visit the humble court of Earl Arvin and make some friends, then make a stop at the Brano Islands to prey on wealthy merchant ships passing by. By the time they return to Norway, their ships are full of plunder, from a successful summer of doing what Vikings do best. Meanwhile, in the court of King Eric Bloodaxe, Queen Gunnild hatches a plot to kill the sons of Skatagrim. She sends her brothers, Avon the Braggart and Ulf Askin, to the feast at Gaula, and with such a large crowd in attendance, it should be easy for them to dispatch Ail and Thorolf. Or so she thinks. Will the Scott the Grimsons survive this attempt on their lives? What does the future hold for them in Norway if they do? Who are Thorvin the Strong and Thorvald the Overbearing? And why haven't we heard of them until now? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Ale Saga, chapters 46 to 49. Yeah, amazingly, all that happens in just four chapters. 
Right. It's enough yeah. to make a poor medievalist despair of ever actually finishing this saga. Yeah, I know you don't always like to look at our social media, but I, I do I just, look at our social media yeah, sometimes right. when, when I can remember how to log in. Uh huh. I recently went back and listened to an episode of Nyal Saga where we uh, we actually bemoaned getting only four chapters done in that episode of Nyal Saga. Oh, so you're saying we're being unoriginal right now? Well, that a little bit, but I, I think what's really striking there is uh, that you gave me such a hard time about the fact that we were only doing four, and now look <laughs> at us. Uh, no. So what's needed here then is the iron will to resist the seductive song of the saga story so we don't end up going over long again. That's a, that's a, that's a weird way of putting it. But. Well, it calls to me, Andy. Like the salt spray in the ocean air, it calls oh, me God. back to the sea of textual analysis. The sea of textual analysis. You are a genius. So this is what four days of nonstop conferencing does to a guy like John. It is a harsh master is the pursuit of narrative causality. All right, Ahab. (laughs) Are we ready to uh, make for the high seas? After you. Part 20. Damn, we're in a tight spot. All right. So our adventure begins in the spring. Uh, thanks to Thor the Herser and his influence over King Eric, Thorolf and Ael have sorted out the immediate danger from King Eric and Queen Gunild over Ael killing Atlebard. Uh, but only the immediate danger. As you might expect, the brothers recognize it'd be best to leave Norway for a bit and maybe let things settle down. Well, that just shows good common sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eric hasn't come across as terribly threatening so far, but Gunild is a dangerous enemy to have. Yes, she is. And as we saw, she's not above a, an attempted poisoning or some other assassination attempt against a guy she's never met who might have annoyed someone she knows. Right, that's a fair point. But the Scott Grimsons aren't skulking out of Norway with their tails hanging low. Mm-hmm. They outfit a big raiding ship and go off on a triumphant series of raids in the Baltic. They have a very successful summer, and that culminates in a series of land raids around Courland. Yeah, we don't get a lot of detail about this part of the trip, which no. is unfortunate. Yeah, no, they just they fight multiple battles and they win wealth from both ship to ship and land attacks. Yeah, I really wanted this one to kind of read like a King Harold Hardrada saga, you know? Right. Where we get to go to all these different places and see the action. But, right, uh, right. Or a little bit of so what we much. saw with uh, with Gunnar's adventures in Yal Saga. Same kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Now, at one point during the summer, the Scott Grimsons need to resupply their ships. And they negotiate a two-week truce with the Corlanders. And use a bit of their newfound riches to restock the ship. Mm-hmm. Once the two weeks are over, they go right back to raiding. Hang on, Eddie. So what you're telling me is they rob the Corlanders, then make yes. a truce, and use the money they just robbed from the Corlanders to buy things from the Corlanders to resupply their raiding ship. I'm not 100% they're buying from the same Corlanders, <laughs> but they're definitely buying from people in the region. <laughs> okay. Just wanted to clarify. Yep. Yep. That's kind of how Viking mm-hmm. uh, expeditions go. <laughs> But the uh, the Corlanders, they have used their time wisely. Uh-huh. And now there are defenders gathering in various places in the area to fight them off. Yeah, no, that, that shows good sense. Yeah. I, the whole Corland episode is, is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. This is an area that's now Western Latvia. And at this time, the Kuronians, or some kind, sometimes called the Kurs, are the dominant group in the region. You know, the Kuronians are really intriguing historically. Although I, I don't want to get too deeply into their story here. This is another one of those regional tribal groups that dot the north of Europe in this period. Uh-huh. Uh, now, because most of those groups didn't go on to form dominant nation states, their histories get short shrift. So you're just going to continue that tradition and sweep them aside. Well, we're going to. We're going to, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but we can at least say that the Corlanders were known as great sailors, great travelers and warriors, and uh, didn't mind a bit of piracy when they were out and about. Sounds a bit like the Icelanders, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're part of this whole world of Viking groups in the north. Uh, the point is, they know a little something about raiding. And so, they're preparing traps for these Icelandic upstarts. 
and the Scott Grimsons are having to choose their raiding spots much more carefully. Oh, definitely. Uh, so this cat and mouse game goes on for a bit. And then one day, Thorolf and Ale come ashore in an estuary and split up. Each, each of them takes a dozen men to raid a nearby town. They begin robbing and killing immediately. And things are going really well. Uh, so well, in fact, that the groups begin spreading farther and farther apart. So they're getting farther away from each other. Yeah. That's never a good sign. No, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. Absolutely no traps here of any kind. Uh-huh. Except at the end of the day, Thorolf sounds a horn at the ships to recall all the men, and Ail's group doesn't return. Okay, okay, all right. One trap. It's kind of a big trap. <laughs> well, well <laughs> so what's happened is that Ail and his crew traveled away from the shore until they found a large farmstead. It took them a while to go through all the buildings to collect the valuables, and when they attempt to leave the compound, they see uh, a large group of men gathered outside at the edge of the woods. See, now that's not good. Yeah. Rule number one of raiding a farm is always have an escape plan. No, he had one. It just isn't any good. Uh, <laughs> Ale orders his men to run sideways along a stockade wall parallel to the woods. But as uh-huh. they run, they realize that the stockade actually ends in a sharp corner that doubles back onto the property. In other words, they're trapped in a narrow dead end. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And they're outnumbered. Yep. And there are more men hiding behind the stockade wall to jab their spears at Ail's men. Yeah. And there are more men on top of the wall who then throw blankets over the Vikings to trap their weapons so they can't fight back. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that all sounds fairly horrible. (laughs) So how does the clever and resourceful Ail manage to outmaneuver his foes this time? How will he escape? Oh, he doesn't. Uh, Ail and his men are captured and tied up, with several of them sustaining injuries in the process. Yeah, this is not Ale's finest moment. It's really not. I mean, this was a but well-conceived he, and well-executed trap, and Ale just walked right into it. That's true, but he's young, so he's learning. This is a good lesson. Sure, if and he it, survives it. <laughs> and the Corlanders set up a really nice uh, trap for yeah. him. The Scott Grimson's two-week truce with the Corlanders was necessary to save a long trip to less hostile shores to restock their ship, but it obviously set up a problem if the Corlanders are resourceful enough to act on it. Yeah, and really all over the North during the Viking Age, we see this same scene enacted. Vikings were often happy to make temporary truces when it served their needs or to accept payment as a bloodless bounty in exchange for going away. They generally come back in a few months or in a few years. It, it, this is uh, this is what Ali of Rex Factor calls fighting wasps with Jan, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Classic Viking uh, metaphor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you you may think you've solved the problem, but uh, there will be more wasps tomorrow. Absolutely. Like that, Jan. Yeah, he's, ri- he's right, of course. Uh, the mm-hmm. question is, what are you doing in between the time you pay off the wasps and the time they come back for more jam? If the king or the lord or whoever's in charge is smart and resourceful, the Vikings are liable to find some nasty surprises in store when they come back. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you may occasionally get the total whittle like Athelred Unrad, who don't seem to be able to set up any real defense and so have to keep paying silver. Or jam. Or, or, or jam, yes. But others were able to buy time to build up defenses or to negotiate longer peace. Right, which is what Alfred the Great did for Britain. So a smart group of landowners in Corland might, for example, set up some kind of a mutual defense pact and organize their defense so that they can show up quickly and quietly outside of a farm mm-hmm. as it's being raided. Uh, for example, yes. <laughs> Just uh, pulling it out of thin air. <laughs> and the setup here suggests significant planning yeah. by the Corlanders. Maybe even some subtle work of drawing Ail's group to this farm in particular. Mm-hmm. And Ail's just totally outmaneuvered by this. And he ends up corralled and captured. So it's not looking great for him and his men. Yep. Now, now the good news, if there is any, 
The good news is that although there are several injuries, no one in Ailes' party has been killed, at least not yet. But it's only a matter of time. The farmer who owns the complex wants to execute the whole group of them on the spot. But the farmer's son objects. Oh, that's a relief. Yeah, yeah. He wants to torture them first. Torture? Yeah, he says he wants to torture them first. Uh, he's got some pretty ambitious torture in mind, actually. Huh. Because it's it's getting dark and he doesn't want to do it in the dark. Right. So he has Ailes' troop locked into an outbuilding with their limbs tightly bound to wait for morning. Well, I mean, if he's after psychological torture, it sounds like he's already started. Oh, yeah. So this is an actual reference to torture. Yeah, we don't actually get a lot of references to torture in the family sagas, and uh, we probably shouldn't get anyone's hopes up for a gruesome scene. <laughs> there really isn't going to be any hideous torture scene coming Wait, up. get their hopes up for torture. Or down whichever we live in modern America, oh, you know? Oh, jeez. That's grim. So, now that torture has been put forward as an option, the stakes are definitely raised for Ale and company. Yeah, and I want to talk about that side of things, but I think we can save it for later. Uh, sure. For now, though, to return to Ale, so the question is, does the threat of torture pretty much give Ale carte blanche for anything he does to these people? I mean, once your captors start planning to torture you, it's safe to say they've ceded the moral high ground. Well, I mean, whether he's allowed to commit mayhem now or not, it's it's only a relevant question if he can get loose. <laughs> so uh, how's Ale at breaking ropes? Uh, not great. Uh, and the farmer's son definitely spotted that Ale was the leader of the party, so he's been tied hand and foot to a post in the middle of the building. Okay. So how's Ale at breaking posts, then? Ah, there it is. Yeah, he's actually ah. pretty good at knocking over posts. That uh, troll strength really comes in handy. Yes. Uh, so while the farmer and his men celebrate their victory in the farmhouse, Ale works on that post, slowly, sort of slowly making it come loose. Mm-hmm. Eventually, he pulls the entire post out of the ground works his arm off of it, and gnaws his way through the ropes on his wrists. Yeah, you'd think there'd be a guard or something somewhere nearby, but apparently mm-hmm. everyone wants to be part of the party at the farmhouse. So <laughs> There's no one here but Ale and his men, and it's not long before they're all loose. But they're still trapped in a building with a barricaded door. I mean, yes, but this is a Norwegian outbuilding. Yeah, we're not talking about walls of concrete and rebar here. Mm-hmm. But the outer walls are of a fairly sturdy timber construction, so yeah. they break through the one wall made of flatwood panels, and they find themselves in a second building, also made of sturdy-looking timber walls. <laughs> what a disappointment. Yeah, they just, <laughs> Oh, that's oh. going to be awful. <laughs> yeah, they break through like, oh, here we are again. Oh, we have a bigger prison now. <laughs> yeah, and while they're trying to find a weak spot in another wall in that room, they hear voices coming from somewhere below them. That's where they find a trap door in the floor. And when they open it, they see three men at the bottom of a deep pit. Uh, hello. Do you, do you want to get out of there? Well, we certainly do. It's an older man named Auki and his two adult sons. Once they've been pulled up out of the pit, they explain that they were from Denmark and were captured by this farmer the previous year. A year? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is starting to look like some kind of sick dungeon for the amusement of the farmer. Or <laughs> maybe for his son, who we've already seen advocating for torture. Well, they're Corlanders, you know. Who knows what they get up to I in the mean, dark. The story really doesn't dig into what exactly happened any more deeply. But yeah, there's something a little unwholesome going on here. Uh-huh. Um, as far as Ale's concerned, the sob story can wait, though. So, where's the best place to get out of here? Well, there's another paneled wall just over there. Break it down and you'll be in the barn. And from there, you may leave as you please. 
Right. There's a there's a real kind of uh, 70s basement aesthetic to this whole place. Lots of, know, lots yeah. of sort of cheap paneled walls. Yes, right. <laughs> um, well, that's exactly what they do is to break through that wall. Once they're all outside, the rest of the crew wants to escape under cover of darkness. Mm-hmm. But Ale's got a slightly different idea in mind. He still wants the farmer's wealth. Yeah, he's still after the money of the farm. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's not like there's any reason to think this is a particularly rich farm. So Irrelevant. Ale came to rob this place, and by God, he's going to rob this place. Uh, yes. Yeah, that sounds about right. And remember, Aoki's been in a hole in the ground for months with his sons, and he's got a bit of a grudge, so he probably doesn't Which mind. is entirely understandable. Yeah. So instead of immediately telling Ale where to find a store of treasure, he sends him to the second floor loft where the farmer keeps all the weapons. But when Ale and his men enter that room, they find the weapons and a group of household servants. Okay, so let's see. So, weapons plus servants plus angry ale. Now, we saw this equation once before, when ale took out his anger at his father on an unfortunate foreman. Yeah, sure enough. Ale and his men slaughter the servants mm-hmm. and then follow Aoki to a second trap door, this one leading to the farmer's treasure room. Oh my room. god, what MC Escher farmhouse is this? Uh, I know, There's right? Just... <laughs> room but, uh, upon room. Yeah, but uh, hey, at last it's looting time. It is absolutely looting time. The men all load themselves up with silver and jewelry and other treasures, and Ale takes an entire locked chest which he carries under one arm. And then they slip back out of the buildings and head for the woods. Really? Just like that? Well, not just like that. Yeah, not quite, no. Uh, Ale's not having any of this skulking about behavior. Uh, This part of the story reads like a one-shot D&D adventure, or maybe a video game side quest. Mm. I mean, escape the dungeon, rescue an ally, sneak through the building, steal the treasure, kill the guards. Yeah. yeah. But, but there is one thing missing. Boss, Boss fight. fight. Yeah. Boss fight, exactly. Yeah, I, I can't believe you of all people are going with this analogy, but I like well, it. Well, it's not me. It's Ale. He stops at the edge of the wood and says, oh, this trip is going wrongly. There's no honor in it. We've stolen the property of our host, so he doesn't know anything. We mustn't act so shamefully. Let's go back to the farm and let them know what happened. Yeah, so this is like Viking Ethics 101, right? You can you can take something as mm-hmm. long as the person you're taking it from knows you're doing it <laughs> and has an opportunity to defend themselves. Uh, taking it without their knowledge, that's just stealing and right. it's against the Viking code. So he's essentially asking yeah. for the boss fight because he needs it for his own glory and to justify taking these goods. Right. Well, and as you say, that gives him sort of the the all the moral authority a Viking needs to rob a exactly. place, right? He's he's faced the person whose property it is. Right. Uh, but he is being a bit ridiculous here. I mean, he's claiming it would be rude to leave without, in essence, offering to kill the farmer and his son. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I think this is an example of a saga-style humor. But isn't this a terrible idea? I mean, they've already yes. won. They got the treasure. <laughs> they saved Aoki and Sons, and they killed the guards, mm-hmm. and they got away. Uh, this is just about satisfying yeah. Ale's outrage about having been captured in the first place. I, probably. I mean, you make a compelling case, but it's kind of a moot point. Because while you were cogently refuting Ale's argument, he ran back to the farmhouse and set the building on fire. Oh, that's so typical. So all this talk <laughs> of it being dishonorable to steal, he's just going to run back and set the building on fire, and then... yeah. yeah. So specifically what's going on here is that Ale grabbed a long log from the fire in the kitchen of the building and stuck it up into the thatch roof. It's not long before the fire catches and spreads. And as it does, Ale takes up a position just outside the main door of the farmhouse. Now, when you're in a wooden farmhouse with a thatch roof, fire is generally cause for some concern. I would say so, yes. Yeah. And the people inside have been drinking and celebrating for hours, so they're not exactly in the best of shape for fighting a sudden fire. 
Well, especially not one they're inside of. <laughs> exactly. So instead, they all try to run outside at once, which is exactly what Ale's looking for. Because they quickly discover that the only door that isn't blocked by fire or jammed shut is the main entrance. And there's a large armed troll-like man in the doorway, ready to cut down anyone who tries to get out. Right, and presumably the flames are illuminating Ale's terrifying features as he stands in the doorway. Now, frightening lighting effects aside, people still want to get out, but Ale chops them down as quickly as they can push through the doorway. Mm-hmm. And it's not long before the entire burning roof collapses in a cloud of flame and everyone left inside in the farmhouse is killed. And now, Ale strolls back to his men at the edge of the woods, hoists his treasure chest back under his arm, and leads them away from the burning compound. Yep. This is a great... slow motion while explosions go off behind him. Yeah. This is a great set piece for establishing Ale's character, actually. The combination of remorselessness and creative violence, a grim sense of humor, the bitterness, getting into a tight spot and getting out through a combination of luck and wit and strength, it's all Ale. Yeah, all that's really missing is a verse or two. This oh, yeah. story is surprisingly without a single bit of Ale's poetry. Yeah, and we'll make up for that later, I'm sure. Undoubtedly, but it, it leads to a question. I don't find a whole lot of scholarship about this part of the saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a bit here and there, but not the kind of attention that other episodes from Ale's life receive. And I wonder if, if there isn't a bit of a scholarly bias in favor of Ale's poetic episodes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we talk about with Ale Saga in in the uh, articles, it generally is around the structuring of the saga and around Mm -hmm. the poetry. I mean, most Mm -hmm. of the articles you find are going to be about those things. And occasionally you'll find things about his character and kinship. Yeah, I was going to say. You know, but most of it tends to be focusing on the poetry. Mm -hmm. So the the sections like this where it's just kind of a set piece that it could appear in almost any saga is going to get less attention. Absolutely. All right. So Ale and his men make their way through the wood to where they left the ship. Uh, where they find Thorolf and the others waiting for them. And there's a quick reunion, and they're off. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, when Ale opens that chest he's carrying around, yeah, he finds it's full of silver, good that's silver. That's good. That's great. Yeah, and he claims the entire chest for himself. Oh, well, that's not yeah. as awesome. Uh, so Ale's kind of rich now. Well, Ale has a surprising amount of confidence that the ship will still be there. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he, he left his brother, right? Uh, but. Yep. It is his brother, and maybe his brother Thorolf is going to wait for him. Well, of course. I mean, they may not see eye to eye on many things, but Thorolf's not the sort to abandon his only brother for being a few hours late to a rendezvous. True, but, well, he's more than a few hours late. He's a full day. Well, but, uh, now there's a, a night, new problem. A night. A night. Uh, but now there's a new problem. Ale has committed a fairly significant act of brutality in Corland, right? Mm-hmm. And there's probably going to be some local resentment there. The waters around Corland are about to get a lot more hostile for these Viking ships. Yep. And so the Scott Grimsons need a new place to continue their raiding. Ah, well, then I have some good news for you and for them. Uh, the Scott Grimsons have now added Alki the Dane and his sons to their crew. And it just so happens that Alki is extremely knowledgeable about the best spots to hit in Denmark. Well, it sounds like these Scott Grimson boys are off on another adventure. Part 21. The Clamor of Spears. All right, John. That's an exciting title. It is. We said before, this episode is full of action. Absolutely. And I hate to break up the action here. Oh, no. But (laughs) there's something we need to address before we jump into the action of the episode. You're just going to puncture this balloon, aren't you? You're just going to suck all the air out of this. There's always something. There always is something. And we're scholars, and that's what we like. Yeah. Uh, this one, this one caught me by surprise, though. Can you read the uh, the opening lines of chapter forty seven? You know, when me? you say that we're scholars, that's what we do. It's, I'm being reminded that this is how you know that uh, Treebeard, the Ent, 
is based on an academic. Yes, uh, that's right. Yes. Now, let's don't not be hasty. hasty. <laughs> let's look into this a little mm, bit deeper. Let's spend a few weeks thinking about this. Uh, all right, so uh, I got the book open now. Uh, I was okay. just vamping for a second there while I got <laughs> the book good. open. <laughs> that was a good delay. Uh, all right, so it says, Harold Gormson had ascended to the throne of Denmark on the death of his father, King Gorm. Denmark was in a state of war, and Vikings lay off its shores in large numbers. I assume, mm-hmm. Is that enough? Do you want me to stop there? Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, thank you. Uh, now, do you notice anything suspicious or odd about that opening? Um, I mean, I've never given it much thought. Well, naturally, and why would you, like most people? You just read the opening of the chapter and you see a familiar transitional motif that announces the arrival of our protagonist at a new location. And there's always that brief nod toward the political situation, who's in charge, all that stuff. But in this case, we're told that Eil, Thorolf, and Auki have arrived in Denmark where Harold Gormson has recently taken over for his father. Mm-hmm. We're also told that Denmark is at war. Right. Now, no, I don't think this is where you're going with this, but for those who aren't familiar with the name Harold Gormson, this is Harold Bluetooth, yes, the first is. king of a unified Denmark. Right. And he's also praised um, the famous Yelling Runestone and in the Chronicles also as the man who converted the Danes to Christianity. Oh, and his nickname, <laughs> Bluetooth or Blauton, uh, is known to everyone who listens to Rex Factor uh, because it's the uh, inspiration for the wireless technology you use to link two devices. Yes. That little Bluetooth symbol on your phone is a bind rune featuring Harold's initials, HB. Yes, and so so now that you're all situated, uh, let, let's get back to the concern that I have here. Mm-hmm. The important issue is that King Harold, Bluetooth, son of Gorm the Old, has come to the throne after his father's death. And do you, by any chance, know when that is, John? Um, I mean, I could give you a ballpark, but I couldn't give you an exact year, no. Uh, you're not alone, because there's no <laughs> firm date. But uh, well, we can reasonably conclude that Gorm the Old died around the year 950, yeah. give or take, you know, five years. Um, there are a variety of stories about how, and if you are interested, you could pick up a copy of Saxo Grammatica's Gesta Donorum and read a fanciful account of uh-huh. Gorm's death at the end of Book 9. Okay, so... Harold Bluetooth's reign in Denmark starts in the late 940s or early 950s. That's right. And I think I can see where you're starting to go, but I'm going to let you lead the way. Thanks. All right. So if we can firmly establish the ascension of Harold Bluetooth to the years around 950, Mm -hmm. though it's often suggested that Harold succeeds his father as late as 958, (laughs) then we should also be able to figure out why Denmark is at war and maybe even with whom. Well, presumably, but that part's going to be a bit more speculative. True, but there are some good candidates. You see, when King Eric died in 954, that's King Eric Bloodaxe, Gunhild, now a widow, took her sons to the court of King Harold Bluetooth in Denmark to secure his protection. Now, Harold was already upset with King Hauken of Norway for attacking Danish territories earlier that year, so Gunhild no doubt saw the potential in this powerful ally. It's a smart woman. She's very smart. And with Gunhild's promise that he could control the province of Ranrike in Norway near Oslofjord, King Harold agreed to support Queen Gunhild's sons in their attempt to overthrow King Hauken the Good. And that might be the moment we're talking about right here. Now, okay, so let's be clear about this. Eric's dead, you're saying, and Hauken the Good is on the throne at this point. That's right. Right, and that does not work for Eil Saga. Uh, King Eric, Bloodaxe, and Gunhild are still very much alive and on the throne in our saga. Exactly. Hauken doesn't kick Eric and Gunhild out until the mid-930s, and... We haven't gotten there yet in the saga. Mm-hmm. And the Ericsons don't overthrow King Hauken the Good until 960 or 961. That's when Gunhild becomes mother of kings. And that's all thanks to King Harold Bluetooth. Right, which 
All this means it can't be Hawkins Norwegian forces in Denmark. Well, right? so we're back to speculation because this is all too late. See, I hope you're playing along beautifully, and I suspect you are. Good you job, hope. <laughs> I, I believe that you put two and two together. Seven. Oh, sorry, five. Ah. Uh, it could also be Germans. It's always a possibility. It could, it could always be the Germans. Harold did have some trouble with the Germans near the start of his reign. Uh, Otto I, the Holy Roman Emperor, really, really, really wanted the Danes to convert to Christianity and submit to his authority. King Harold wasn't thrilled about the idea at first and may even have declared war before eventually converting himself. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of stories about the conversion of Bluetooth. Uh, But that's also in the 950s, well after the period we're supposed to be in. Right now. That's the problem, isn't it? Uh, So I'm going to I'm going to jump ahead here to where I think you're going. Uh, The Battle of Brunaburgh in England, Mm -hmm. uh, which we're about to cover in our next episode, takes place in 937. That's a firm date. We know what year that takes place. And King Athelstan, who's going to figure largely in that episode, only ruled England until about 939. Yeah. So everything you're proposing is decades later than where we are in the saga. That's right. Yeah, that's the problem. But the saga author very firmly states that the king of Denmark is Harold Bluetooth Gormson. Mm-hmm. And I already established that he doesn't come to the throne until after the events we're about to cover. That's Brunenberg, Avelstan, the flight of King Eric Bloodaxe and Queen Gunhild. Uh, none of that stuff has happened yet. Right, which means our author has his chronology all goofed up. Yeah. And it really wouldn't be an issue at all. We could just have some imaginary Danish war going on if he hadn't mentioned Harold Gormson at the start of chapter 47. Right. And that detail isn't even important to the narrative at this point, so why bother mentioning it? I, well, I mean, the immediate answer is, I think the author wants Ael and Thorolf to take part in the Battle of Brunenburg, right, because it's a centerpiece of Athelstan's rule. Hell, it's a centerpiece yeah. of regional history for quite a while. Uh, some English sources will call Brunenburg the battle, even after the Battle of Hastings over a century later. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a consequential moment for the Scandinavian peoples as well. It's really the moment when the Dane law ceases to have any political meaning in England, and it briefly ends the dream of Scandinavian rule in England. Yeah, at least for the 10th century. Yeah, no, there's going to be a uh, the second act to that story, yes. Uh, but having Ail and Thorolf at Brunenburg is a showpiece for the saga. And as we're going to see, the author uses that moment for a climactic moment in Ail's life as well. Right. But he also wants these guys tied to all the other kind of uh, uh, royal figures around Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And this is a convenient point in the story for him to check off Bluetooth. Right, This kind of narrative impact from these historical moments might be worth a bit of historical time fudging. I guess so. And it, it's not the first time we've seen a bit of time fudging in the sagas. Mm, There's a really interesting fudge. story. <laughs> okay, Homer. There's a really interesting story. Uh, to be told about the way time works and doesn't work in stories like this. Yeah, okay, wait, 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 wait. This, this is probably not a story for right now, though. All right, yeah. So a lengthy digression on whether or not Harold Bluetooth was king at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. He was, but uh, ale and all this stuff couldn't be happening at this particular yeah, but moment. But I'm pulling the emergency brake on this digression. Yeah, not sure if it was a valuable digression, but uh, I think it's worthwhile to look at a saga writer's process even if uh, it's just to point out a potential problem. But, uh, okay, let's get back to the story. You said something about the clamor of spears. Oh, did I? Oh, yes. <laughs> back quite a while now. The title for the yeah. section, you mean. You just want to run the title again and start fresh like this never happened? <laughs> sure. All right. Part 21. The clamor of spears. Again. Well... 
this promises to be a fun section that we're starting for the very first time. Oh, very convincing, yes. <laughs> so as, we, as we've exhaustively established, Eil, Thorolf, and Auki arrive in Denmark during the reign of Harald Gormson, somehow, while Denmark is at war with some unknown enemy. And the future King Hauken the Good, but uh, go on. You be quiet. Don't drag us down there again. There are Vikings everywhere, and the implication is that with Denmark at war, the time is right to do some raiding in Danish territories. Yes. Uh, now, since Alki knows the territory quite well, Ale asks for information on potential targets for a profitable raid. Yeah. Alki explains that there's a town called Lund on the shores of Oresund. Mm. It's in modern-day Sweden, but would have been controlled by Denmark at that time. Look at you with your maps. Uh, I love it. Lund is a good target for profit, but as Alki makes very clear they're likely to encounter significant resistance from the locals if they try to enter the town. In other words, this is not a soft target. Yeah, it sounds like exactly the kind of place Ale is looking for. Yeah, Ale, but not every Viking is as bold, brave, and reckless as Ale. Uh, some of the men don't want to attack Lund. Right? There's much softer targets around. Others of the men are more inclined to fight. When they ask Ale, he hits them with a motivational verse. Let us make our drawn swords glitter, you who stained wolf's teeth with blood. Now that the fish of the valleys thrive, let us perform brave deeds. Each man in this band will set off for Lund apace. There before sunset, we will make noisy clamor of spears. Woo, sign me up. Hand me a sword, John. I am ready to set off for Lund a pace. A pace, huh? Yeah, before the sun sets, a pace. That's not what a that's not what a pace means. <laughs> uh, well, as you can see, it means quickly. I, I know, quickly. I know. Uh, so Ale may be a sociopath at times, but he can be quite an inspiring general when he needs to be. Absolutely. Uh, now the men rally behind Ale, and together they attack the town of Lund. As Alki predicted, the townspeople attack when they see Ale's troop coming. And the battle eventually rolls up to the town walls. Uh, there are men posted on the walls to repel the oncoming Vikings, but they're no match for Ale and his men. Uh, the Vikings sack the city, plunder anything of value, and set fire to the place before heading back to their ships. If I'm being completely honest here, John, this scene bothers me a little. Mm -hmm. What have the people of Lund done to deserve this? I mean, what have the people of any town raided by the Vikings done to deserve the treatment they get? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just it's a fact of life in the North in the Middle Ages. If you've got something of value, you need to find a way to protect it. I mean, I get it. I study it. I just don't like it. Mm -hmm. And and why do they have to burn the place to the ground before they leave? I mean, go ahead and take the valuables. That's fine. Do you have to destroy <laughs> everyone's homes and businesses after you finish? Uh, I think Ale would say yes. See, but that's just senseless. It's illogical <laughs> even. Leave the buildings and people alone. They'll recover a lot faster and then create new wealth. Uh -huh. Then is, you can come back and rob them all over again next year. Yeah, this is, I, when I talk to my students about this, I call this shearing the sheep. Right? Yeah. That the, the smart Vikings, the ones who know enough to leave the town and the people so they can reaccumulate their wealth. And then you can come back in three or four years and take it again. Absolutely. So destroying the town just wastes a potential source of income. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry if the Viking lifestyle hurts your sensibilities, Andy. <laughs> oh, and uh, and where I have at the bottom of my page on this one, uh, where is Thorolf uh -huh. during all of this? <laughs> These are supposed to be the adventures of Thorolf and Ale, and they uh -huh. don't seem to work together very often. Well, I remember they've each got their own ship or even ships. Uh, yeah, Thorolf's true. whereabouts are covered in the next chapter. Now, he's a bit further north along the coast of modern-day Sweden near a town called Halland. 
Holland. Holland. Again, this is part of the Danish kingdom during the Viking Age. Right. Now, the weather's been bad, so Thorolf and his men moor their boats in the harbor. And you can imagine how the locals feel seeing these great Viking warships park in the middle of their harbor and just sit there. Yeah. Ugh. In fact, there's an earl named Arvin living nearby who's extremely uncomfortable with the arrival of these ships in his territory. Arvin wants to know whether the Vikings are there to raid or to seek shelter, so he sends a group of men to ask. Yeah, imagine being assigned that task. Yeah. <laughs> men, there's a small fleet of Viking warships in the harbor. You, you know that we are living in dangerous times. Aye, Lord. Just yesterday, the town of Lund was sacked and destroyed. The Vikings slaughtered the people and took everything there. Terrible. Then they burned the place down. Can you imagine that? Goodness. Tragic. The whole thing is just tragic. Yes. Anyways, I need some volunteers to ride down to the Vikings camping on our shores and ask them why they're there. You what now? I need a group of volunteers to go talk to the Vikings. I want to know if their mission is peaceful or warlike. Uh, and what if it is warlike? Well, fortunately for Earl Arvin and his men, uh, Thorolf has no intention of raiding in that particular territory. I like I like how Arvin kind of evolved into a kind of a Kermit character by the end of there. <laughs> did he? <laughs> he most definitely did, at least in my ears. I gotta, I gotta uh, think. That, I gotta think over that voice again in my head. Anyway, um, Thorolf's answer to this question of the volunteers is actually kind of insulting. He says the country isn't rich enough to raid and plunder anyway. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess good news. Uh, so mm. the messengers bring this happy news back to Earl Arvin, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Our place is a dump. Yeah, <laughs> but a They're dump that's going to be left in peace. Hooray! Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the, 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 the instead of like having enough wealth to defend in in this part of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. what you should really be doing is cultivating the look of a really shabby village right, right. that no one would be interested in, like underground somewhere, say in a trap door in your farmstead. There you go. Uh, so, uh, since the coast is clear, Arvin rides down to visit the Vikings himself. See, now mm. in my head, Arvin looks like Frank Oz. because you, <laughs> <laughs> He meets with you Thorolf, and the two men get along like gangbusters. Yeah, I'm not surprised. That Thorolf has a way with nobility. He really knows how to get friendly with the aristocracy. You know, it's a, it mm. goes along with being a Thorolf in this family. Uh, and before you know it, Arvin invites Thorolf and all his men to a feast. Bring anyone you want, he says. <laughs> It's getting worse. Uh-huh. I know that was intentional. Uh-huh. Uh, that's not a smart invitation, though. Arvin is inviting a whole crew of Vikings that have just been raiding the coastline. Yeah. Straight into his house. Yeah. When the time comes, uh, Thorolf brings 30 men with him and his brother Ale as well. And you have to think that Arvin's got to calculate this really carefully, right? He wants to put on a good meal so he doesn't anger the Vikings. Yeah. But not too rich, or they might start to rethink how poor this town is. That's right. <laughs> and also, it's worth noting, Thorolf and Ale are together again. Uh-huh, yes. I'm so glad that Thorolf is including him in this particular adventure. Uh, that said, as we saw last time, Ale doesn't exactly make a good impression uh, when he comes to a feast. No, last time he killed a man, fled the scene, and then earned the enmity of the king of Norway. Yeah, and I wouldn't expect this one to go much better. Well, I mean, sometimes you got to have faith that Ale can pull it all together when he needs to. Remember, he only gets ornery when he perceives injustice. True. And in this case, Arvin is going to treat his honored guests quite well. Mm-hmm. They're brought into the main room of Large Hall, and there's plenty of ale and good company to be had for everyone. Ah, uh, and here we get a quick look into this culture of feasting and drinking. Uh, it's something that I've wanted us to do a saga brief on for some time now. Are we going to dabble in that now? 
No, no, no. We'll save it for the brief, uh, which is going to be done very soon, I'm sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that drinking brief for years now. Like every time we're getting ready to come to Kalamazoo, you say, let's record that brief on drinking. I should be able to finish it in a week or so. I mean, in fairness, I've been deep into the experiential research side of things. Oh, so you've just been drinking, in other words. Yeah. (laughs) Very little writing. Okay. Well, while we're bringing these things up, how are you doing on that Greta and Beowulf saga brief, Andy? Oh, ow. Okay, (laughs) touche. I guess I shouldn't bring up briefs at all. Uh Uh-huh. Now, the saga says, Before the tables were set up, the Earl said they should cast lots to pair off the men and women who would drink together. Mm -hmm. The remainder would drink by themselves. Which is really interesting. Yeah, it's a twisted 10th century key party. Yeah, um, I hope not. Well, no, it's it's not because part of the host's hospitality is providing uh, a man with a companion for the evening, right? One woman per man. Have we seen anything like that before? I, I think there's something about it in one of the warrior poet sagas, but I'm on day four of a conference, Andy. <laughs> there's, no, there's no chance I'm going to remember which one. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, if you're listening to this and can remember which one I'm thinking of, good job. <laughs> <laughs> is it uh, is it implied that these women are meant to provide, say, more than drinking companionship oh, to these men? Oh, I mean, I mean, that's a good, I suppose it's a good question, but I don't think so. Uh, it's hard to say, but I mean, the Earl's own daughter draws Ale's lot. I, right. I can't imagine the Earl would expect his daughter to do anything but keep her partner company. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty clear from her first impression of Ale that she doesn't seem terribly interested in him at all. No, uh, hang on. I'm not so sure of that. Uh, although I'm taking interested to mean intrigued. Uh, you might mean attracted to. Uh, I think she wants nothing to do with him. Uh, well, I mean, to be fair, also, Ale is still in the first half of his teenage years, right? He's 14 yeah. or 15 at this point. Yeah, she, she really doesn't expect much of him, so why would you want to hang out with a, a boy? Plus, he's not exactly the handsomest of men. Remember, he got hit with the ugly gene from his father and grandfather. Okay, of course, but Ale's also a very confident young man. He takes a seat where the Earl's daughter had been sitting earlier in the day. No doubt eager to start charming this young woman who's roughly the same age as him. Yeah. Uh, as far as he's concerned, they're a perfect match. But the Earl's daughter isn't so sure. She walks over to Ale, who's sitting there patting the seat next to him with eyes wide and inviting, and she speaks a sudden verse. What do you want my seat for? You've not often fed wolves with warm flesh. I'd rather stoke my own fire. This autumn you did not see ravens screeching over chopped bodies, and you were not there when razor-sharp blades crashed. So in other words, you're just a boy, and I'd rather sit with a man. Yeah, that's it exactly. Now, you tell me if I'm reading too much into it, but how do you read that line, I'd rather stoke my own fire? (laughs) I know exactly how your mind works, Andy. I I knew this would come up. Um... The translation does seem to suggest a bit of a double entendre. Uh, there seems to be some sexual innuendo here. Yeah, I hoped that you'd say that. I, you know, not, sometimes I don't know whether I'm reading too deeply into things, but I've always been struck by that line mm-hmm. as being particularly bawdy. Oh, I mean, you know, given the line "stoke my own fire," I don't know how else you'd read it, really. I mean, you could read it literally, like she just wants to stoke a fire by herself when fires are a place where you have companionship. This is a verse, Andy. Nothing's literal. Exactly. So here's the thing. I wanted to know, so I pulled out my edition of Ale Saga by Bjarni Anderson and translated the poem for myself. Mm -hmm. And this line is, It's not a terribly difficult line to translate. And you know what? Yeah, it doesn't say anything about stoking your own fire. 
it doesn't say anything of the sort. It basically says, I'd rather be alone. I mean, it almost exactly says that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so our faithful translator, Bernard Scudder, is taking a liberty here. Indeed he is. And this one's pretty egregious in my opinion because it changes the whole tone and substance of the exchange for me. Now, I hadn't, I haven't um, examined this in any detail. Is it possible there's a manuscript variant? No, not one that would change the line significantly. I did mm-hmm. look uh, online at the various manuscripts and looked for variations. And mm-hmm. the only thing you'll find there are standard abbreviations for okay. like the, the, the to be verb and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's a very straightforward line. I'd rather be alone is a great translation. Yeah, I mean, there's always a fair bit of leeway in translating these verses, right? I mean, yeah. um, you have to remember that these verses are rarely meant to be understood literally. And so there's mm-hmm. a certain amount of kind of uh, slippage. Uh, but this this does sound to be a little outside the strike zone. Uh, although I applaud your attempted humor, Dr. Scudder. Yeah. Uh, assuming it's innuendo at all. I mean, he he really might have literally meant that she'd rather be alone and we're just two filthy old men and Scudder's an innocent. <laughs> it's a fair point. Uh, Ale sits the young woman down beside him and responds with a verse of his own. I've wielded a blood-stained sword and howling spear. The bird of carrion followed me when the Vikings pressed forth. In fury we fought battles, fire swept through men's homes. We made bloody bodies slump dead by city gates. Hmm. And there, obviously, he's referring to that... Uh that attack that we just talked about. Yep. Yeah. This, um, the attack on the city. on Lund. Yeah. And with that, the Earl's daughter is convinced of Ale's worthiness. They drink together all night and have a wonderful time. Right. And again, to be clear, there's nothing suggesting that Ale has any untoward intentions with the Earl's daughter. Right. Yeah. She's just a fun drinking companion and they're mm-hmm. both clever with poetry and they are, you know, similar minded, I guess. Right. But it is implied that the women are objects of the men's fancy at this feast. Mm-hmm. They are doled out like prizes to the men who win them, and it's not insignificant that fate rewarded our protagonist with the finest woman of all. Right, now we have to consider this practice of uh, distributing the women, because it does suggest that there's an unequal number of men and women, right? He says yeah. the, that the men who win in the lottery will get a woman to sit with, the rest of the men will drink by themselves. Is the idea here to forestall fighting among the men over the attentions of the women? I think so, absolutely. That essentially these men are assigned as not quite a chaperone, but as a companion for the evening for these women, and the men who don't win the lottery are supposed to just stay away for the evening. Mm-hmm, because fate suggested that they should. Well, fate suggested they should, and also um, this suggests maybe a cultural accommodation for the uh, the assumed bad intentions of visiting Vikings. Also, the uh, you know, in in a culture where women were a little harder to come by, there are a lot of men, um, right. and, and a little you know, far too few women. Uh, one of the problems they run into in Iceland, at least. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, after a, after a day of feasting, uh, Thorolf, Ale, and Alki set sail. Alki and his sons then head home to their farmlands in Jutland. Uh, Thorolf and Ale go north along the coast and raid a little more in the Brano Islands. Yeah, that's a cluster of islands just off the western coast of modern-day Sweden near Gothenburg. Uh, if you look at it on a map, you'll actually see it's a great place for Vikings to hide with all these little nooks and crannies, uh, really neat little islands. Yeah, the saga actually says something just like that. Uh, the Vikings mm-hmm. liked that spot because trading ships always went through that area. 
Exactly, which uh, was interesting to me, and it prompted me to look into the islands a little bit more. So first, I pulled up the map and looked at them. There's, and then there's dug literally there's literally one line about the Brano Islands, Andy. Yeah, it's, it's not important in the saga. I mean, you're right, but you know how I am. I'm a, I'm uh-huh. a kind of guy that likes to find the most minute details fascinating, and uh-huh. this is this is one of the most minute details in, in this saga. <laughs> For example, did you know that the Brano Islands play a significant role in several other sagas? I did not. And why would you once again? <laughs> but speaking of pirates waiting in the Brano Islands to attack ships, do you remember when Stangard of the Lovely Feet was kidnapped by pirates near the end of Cormac's saga? Oh, uh, how could I forget Stangard? Uh, yeah, her husband, Thorvald Tintin, was sailing to Denmark and got attacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that in the Brano Islands? Yes, it was. That's where nice. pirates and traders kind of passed mm-hmm. through to get to Goldenberg. Um, and I know we haven't covered Lax de la Saga yet, but you've read it several times and you'll know. And even if you don't remember, John, uh, you'll recall from the panel on disability in the sagas that you were on this past Friday that Sean Hughes talked about Hoskuld traveling to an important meeting by uh, between the Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes. Right. Now, that's where Hoskuld purchased the slave woman who appeared to be unable to speak. That's right. Uh, she turns out to be an important figure in the saga, but we won't spoil anything until we get to that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume you're going to tell me that Hoskold purchased this woman in the Brano Islands? He did indeed, uh-huh. in the Brano Islands. And the Brano Islands also feature several times in the saga of Bjorn, champion of the Hitardal people. In one scene, Bjorn searches the islands for Thord, the guy who married Aldney Isle Candle before Bjorn could get home to claim her. Now, Bjorn finds Thord and confronts him about this betrayal. Right, now I remember this one. Uh, so Bjorn thinks about killing Thord, but decides to spare him. Mm-hmm. Uh, chooses to humiliate him instead. Doesn't he take the trading ship from Thord, all the valuables, all his armor? That's right, yeah. He puts Thord and his companions in a small boat and tells them to go far, far away, maybe mm-hmm. to the Orkney Islands. So it's a humiliating defeat for Thord. And mm-hmm. the Brono Islands, they, they do come up a few more times in that saga, but you get the idea. These islands are fairly yeah. consistently portrayed. Yeah, and that's really interesting. Uh, a few episodes ago, you talked about the consistent portrayal of Gunild in the sagas. Right. Uh, and now we're finding that places can also be characterized consistently across the sagas. That's exactly uh, it. Right. I mean, this is, you know, so the character of the Brano Islands is that it's a it's a, something of a lawless place where mm-hmm. there's a lot of Viking activity and where a lot of transactions can take place. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I thought so. Anyway, there's not much left to say about Thorolf and Ale's activities that summer. Uh, they raid until autumn and then return to Fjordana, where their good friend Thorir the Hairseer lives. Good friend and Thorolf's powerful new uncle-in-law. His uncle-in-law, yes. We all keep track of that. Right, that's what he is. Uh, you might not worry much about your wife's uncles, but uh, trust me, Thorolf is very interested in that relationship. Oh, yes, he is. Fair enough. And Thorir genuinely likes Thorolf. He welcomes his nephew-in-law warmly. And his son, Arambjorn, or Arambjorn, genuinely likes Ale. The saga says that Arambjorn welcomed the brothers even more warmly. Mm-hmm. And then he invites Ale to stay there at Fjordana for the winter. I'm guessing Arambjorn has forgotten what happened the last time Ale stayed with them. That is exactly what Thorir says. I do not know what King Eric will think about this. Because after Bard was killed, he'd said that he did not want to ail in this country. And he's right. I don't know why they're back. Uh, having ale stay in Norway is not a good idea. No. Uh, but Armbjorn doesn't care. He tells his father to use his influence to smooth things over with the king. And Thorir, who, to be fair, does have a lot of influence with the king, agrees to give it a shot. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Part 22. Avon the braggart goes for a swim. 
Now at this point, the saga does one of those quick digressions to introduce a few new characters. I feel like at this point, all we've done is talk about digressions, both our own and those of the story. (laughs) Yeah, the story doesn't really move along that much. Yeah, no. But Uh, some important things are about to happen. Sure. And when we do get a digression to Mm -hmm. introduce a few new characters, it's usually an indication of one of two possibilities. Either we have the beginning of a new episode in the saga, or we've got some fodder for the killing machine. Which is it this time, John? Well, we don't want to spoil the ending of the section, do we? Of course not, no. So I'm just going to say that we're introduced to two brothers, mm-hmm. Thorvald the Overbearing and Thorvin the Strong. They are close relatives of Bjorn the Landholder, who's uh, Thorel's father-in-law. Yes, uh, they used to go raiding with Bjorn when he was younger, mm-hmm. and then once Bjorn settled down with Thora, the two brothers began raiding with Thorolf, so they're pretty right. close. And when Eil arrived and took over one of the ships, Thorvin the Strong manned the prow. Right, So these two are very close to Thorolf, and they probably represent the best of his crew. If that's the case, then why didn't we hear about them in the previous sections, right? <laughs> There's been a lot of raiding, no mention yeah. of these guys. I mean, the uh, the pat answer is because this is the point in the saga when they become significant. Uh, but I'm guessing it's because the author hadn't figured that he'd need them yet. <laughs> yes. He needs a few new characters for this section. So suddenly, Thorvald and Thorvin are here. Mm, how surprising. Uh, so Thorvin the Strong and Thorvald the Overbearing join Thorolf and Eil at Thorir's for the winter. Uh, and if that wasn't enough Thor- Thors for you, just keep listening. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of feasting, there's a lot of toasting, there's a lot of good times. But then the saga jumps back to the autumn, picking the narrative back up where it left off. Uh, and we see Thorir the Herser traveling to the court of King Eric to ask that he not take offense at Eil staying with him over the winter. Mm-hmm. Right, that thing that we left off with last time. Uh, Eric isn't too excited about the idea, but as Arnbjorn predicted, Thorir's influence over Eric is strong enough to sway his opinion in Ail's favor. We should just remind people this is because uh, Thorir is the uh, foster father of Eric. That's right. Uh, going back a very long ways. And so he's got a kind of uh, almost a father's influence over Eric. Mm-hmm. Now, Gunhild, on the other hand, isn't so easily swayed. Yeah. She says, well, it's not her foster father. No. She says, I think that once again you are allowing yourself to be too easily persuaded and you're too quick to forget being wronged. You will go on favoring Scotlagrim's sons until they kill a few more of your close kinsmen. Okay, now, King Eric recognizes this as an insult right away. More than anything else, Gunild, you doubt my ferocity. He's not wrong. Right. But that's in keeping with her character as this kind of stock, cruel, and overbearing female that we see in the sagas. Right, true. Uh, and Eric Bloodaxe comes off as an ineffective ruler when compared to Gunild. Mm-hmm. Right? She's she's much more the competent figure in court. Yeah. Uh, whereas Harold may have been too harsh, Eric appears to be a little soft. Yeah, I agree. And we've talked about John Hines' article, Kingship in Ale Saga, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees Eric as a foil to Ale in this section, but not in the same way that Harold served as a foil in the Thorolf and Scotlagrim section. Right. He says... The way in which Erika's involvement moves the plot along is not by his being intrinsically bad or malicious. That character is taken by his queen, Gunnildr. But rather by proving himself on crucial occasions to be a relatively weak king. No, that's an, I like that. Um, he certainly didn't pursue Ale too hard for the killing of Atlebard. No. Right, which was a fairly big deal. Uh, and now he's willing to let this dangerous enemy of the state hang out at Thoros all winter with no thought of revenge and only the compensation that he's already received. Yeah, which is why Gunnild is so upset. She tells Eric that he's disrespecting Bard by not pursuing the issue. 
Eil's mm-hmm. presence in Norway calls into question the king's authority, which is really bad optics. And since Eric isn't willing to fix the problem, Gunnild decides eh, she'll take care of it herself. Yes. Uh, so in the spring, she calls on her brothers, Ivan Braggart and Alf Askman, uh, or Alf the Seafarer. Uh, these brothers actually appear in several of the king's sagas. That's right. Yeah, they help in the fight against Hulk and the Good in 961 that actually puts Harold Greycloak on the throne. Right. Now, I, I know they appear in other, other sagas as well, but I can't call them to mind at the moment. But they're known mm-hmm. to be powerful men, excellent warriors. Uh, their introduction in Ale's saga echoes that part of their reputation, but adds they were not popular with most people. Yes. It also tells us that they were just young men at this time. Mm-hmm. So the author is at least acknowledging that they'll have a significant role to play later in life. Well, if they make it through this story anyway. Yeah. Uh, so Gunnild tells her brothers there will be a huge feast and a sacrifice in Gowler that summer. King Eric and all the great men of Norway will be there. The crowd is going to be so large, it would be easy to sneak up on Scotlagrim's sons and kill one or even kill both of them. It's a decent, if terribly underhanded, plan. Well. And back in Fjordana, Thorir is also preparing to attend the sacrifice at Gaula. Ah, Gaula. Uh, it's also the place that uh, Olver Hump fell for Solvig and got uh, oh, shot yeah. down by her father. Good memory. Yeah, that feels like many sagas ago now. Yeah, no, that was our first episode of Ale's Saga. <laughs> it's, it's this <laughs> it feels saga. Like a long time ago. Uh, Solvig's father, Earl Otley the Slender, lived there. And it was at the Autumn Feast and Sacrifice that Olvir Hump first encountered Solvig and gave up raiding to become a full-time would-be wooer. That's right, yeah. So Gaular is an important religious site for the Norwegians and a very big draw. There's certainly a lot more to say about it that would be really, really interesting, but... John, I think we already hit our digression quotient. Oh, have we? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Or are you just being lazy? Mm, maybe a little of column A, a little of column B. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so Thor the Herser, uh, a wise old man, explains to his son Arnbjorn that he will be going to the sacrifice at Gowler. Yeah. He says, I don't want Ale to go. Mm-hmm. I know about Gunhild's conniving. And Ail's impetuousness and the king's severity. And we cannot keep an eye on all three at once. I mean, he's not wrong about that. Yeah. So Thorir suggests that Arnbjorn stay home because Ail will want to be wherever Arnbjorn is. Right. Now, and this plan, we should say, works very well. Uh, Thorir takes the more trustworthy Thorolf to the sacrifice, but the impetuous young Ail stays behind with Arnbjorn. There's a large crowd at the sacrifice, which is just what Gundald had predicted. Ivan Braggart stalks Thorolf through the crowds, but he can never get him alone. Everywhere Thorolf goes, Thorir is there with him, whether it's day or night. Yeah, and that's a good friend. Mm-hmm. Ivan eventually returns to his sister and tells her that he won't be able to get at Thorolf. He's too close to Thorir. Mm. Gunnild is disappointed, but not deterred. And so she suggests that he at least kill one of Thorolf's men rather than letting them all go unscathed. Uh-huh. Now we flash forward to a few nights later. Ivan Braggart and his brother Alf Askman uh, make their move. It was late. King Eric's already gone to bed. Uh, Thor and Thorolf have gone to bed. But Thorvin the Strong and Thorvald the Overbearing are still up drinking at the bench. Yeah, and Avon and Alf approach these two. Mm-hmm. And the two pair of brothers eventually start drinking together and having a pretty good time. Yeah, I mean, they're playing a drinking game in pairs. And I really want to know more about this drinking game and what the rules are. Yeah, me too. Because the opposing teams seem to be sharing a horn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ivan Braggart, uh, one of the Queen's brothers, and Thorvald the Overbearing are drinking from one horn, while Thorvin the Strong and Alf Askman are drinking from the other. 
and everything seems to be going really well until accusations of cheating start getting thrown around. Oh. Soon a quarrel breaks out and Avon draws his sword and then stabs Thorvald the overbearing. And this wound is enough to kill him. Oh, see? The noise from this fight obviously rouses Eric's men and Thorir's. Uh, they all leap to their feet, but because they're in the sacred temple, none of them have a weapon. And that's probably a good thing because there would have been a slaughter. Yeah. Uh, the fight is broken up and pieces restored, but the damage has already been done. Yeah, Avon the Braggart had accomplished his mission from Queen Gunild, and mm-hmm. that should settle the issue of Bard's death, right? I mean, balance has been restored and all is right with the world, and Gunild can rest easy that she's addressed the insult and reclaimed some of her husband's honor. Yeah, not exactly, no. Uh, of course first not. of all, as I suggested, uh, Avon is in big trouble for this. Not only was he carrying a weapon into the temple, but he killed a man with that weapon in a sacred space. He's immediately declared a defiler, sent into exile as an outlaw. Now, Eric and Gunild arrange for him to move to Denmark and live with King Harald Bluetooth, but it's still a stain on the honor. Yeah, and that's hardly a significant punishment, and it may even be a step up. Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, Harald is certainly pleased to see him. Uh, he certainly puts him in charge of defending the land from Vikings. Yeah. Which big, uh, may, may be a position. promotion or may not. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, King Eric who's far more of a peacemaker in this saga than a blood axe-wielding maniac, <laughs> offers to pay compensation for Thorvald, but both Thorolf and Thorvin turn this offer down, which yep. I guess suggests that they're going to pursue a more violent form of justice. Oh, yes, they are. Uh, now, the following spring, Thorolf and Eil prepare to go raiding again in the Baltic. They never quite make it to the Baltic, though. Uh, they end up sailing south, past Jutland, and then into Frisia, where they raid for most of the summer. When they're done raiding, they work their way up north again. And one night, when they're moored somewhere on the border between Denmark and Frisia, uh, two men board Ail's ship. And these are Auki's men. Their mm-hmm. old friend Auki, remember? Yep. Um, and they've come to tell Ail that Avon Braggart was lurking on the coast of Jutland, waiting to ambush him and Thorolf on their way back. Avon has apparently gathered a large force and plans to finish the job Gunnald gave him that winter. Right. Now, Eil learns that Avond himself is commanding two light ships not far away, right? sort of a scouting party. Mm-hmm. That's exciting news for Eil, who immediately orders his men to lift the awnings and raise the anchor. He also tells them to be very quiet. And here I'm guessing that I, I initially thought it was to surprise Avon, but Avon's kind of far away and he's about to sail over there. <laughs> so I'm guessing he, he really just doesn't want Thorolf to know that he's, he's leaving. Yeah, and I think that's got to be it, right? That's the only people who would be alerted by a loud ship. Yeah, and potentially uh, now, upset about it. Right. So by dawn, they've made their way to where Avon Braggart's two ships are moored. Ail and his men greet them with a volley of rocks and spears, killing many of Avon's men outright. Yeah, and rather than get involved in the fight, Avon himself jumps overboard and swims to shore as quickly as he can. Oh, so in other words, he's running away from the fight. Yeah, not a good look for Avon. Definitely not. So Ail seizes the two uh, scouting ships and all mm-hmm. the valuables that are on board, including the clothes and weapons of the men they've defeated. And then he sails back to where he and Thorolf were moored the night before. Right now, Thorolf, uh, who, of course, at some point woke up and realized the ships were gone, uh, sees his brother returning with two extra ships and asks where they've been. And Ail responds with a verse. A mighty fierce attack we made off Jutland shores. He fought well, the Viking who guarded the Danish realm, until swift Ivan Braggart and all his men had bolted 
from their horse of the waves and swam off the eastern sand. I like the sarcasm in this one. That he fought well, the Viking who had guarded the Danish realm, uh, before revealing what actually happened. Right? Yeah. They, were all, they all dived off the ship and swam for shore. Ale's got a real knack for insult poetry. Yeah, he does. Um, but uh, Thorolf doesn't seem to appreciate that cleverness. <laughs> he just says, I think what you have done will make it inadvisable for us to go to Norway this autumn. <laughs> it's an understatement. Yeah. Ale actually agrees, and so they set out to look for another place to winter. Right. As far away from the now furious Queen Gunnild as possible. Yeah. Uh, and they find it, too. After a long sailing voyage, the brothers come ashore in an exciting new land, one that we haven't seen for a while. It's old blighty, Andy. It's Albion. Angoland is what you're saying. Well, Britain, anyway, yeah. Uh, so as we mentioned earlier... The Scotlagrimsons are somewhat anachronistically coming ashore in the reign of King Athelstan, mm. the grandson of Alfred the Great, and it's 937 AD, Ooh. and Athelstan's in the fight of his life. As the brothers arrive, they find an island preparing to go to war with itself. Ale and Thorolf have wandered into the war for control of England, and it's a war that's about to come to a bloody conclusion in a little place called Brunenburg. Ah, uh, yes. And, uh, Andy, where is that exactly? Well, that's a very good question, and <laughs> part of what we'll need to talk about. Excellent. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, of course. Uh, this battle and its aftermath is going to be the focus of our entire next episode. Great. Okay. Uh, but before we wrap things up here, uh, I said earlier I wanted to go back to that episode in Corland. That was a while ago, but I like the Corland episode, so it's worth uh -huh. talking about some more. So uh, this is the, the moment when Ale and his crew are caught by the farmer, right? Yes. Uh, they are bound and imprisoned and waiting for morning uh, when the farmer's son intends to torture them. Mm, right. I mean, there wasn't any actual torture in the text, and that's generally true of the other sagas. Mm -hmm. The direct or indirect attack is the preferred way of dealing with an enemy. But uh, what did you want to say? Okay. Um, I think the question is still here, though. Uh, when torture comes up in saga writing, which, as we've said, is pretty rare, I think the purpose in the text is generally to show the drengskapper of the tortured man. Or to expose the lack thereof. Drengskapper right? mm -hmm. is a little bit difficult to translate into English, but I think the best we can come it's up with is going to be somewhere, yep. somewhere between honor and manliness and dignity. Somewhere, yeah, in there. yeah. I would say like fortitude plus honor plus capability, something like that. Okay, uh, it's not a coarse idea, and that's the key, right? This isn't about tough guy antics. It's about a manly spirit rather than balls or guts or any body parts, right? Fair uh, enough. This, this is essentially a social game of honor, kind of thing. Uh, that's what we're saying. Yeah. So in this case, when you're being tortured, uh, Drinkskopper presumably is about withstanding the pain, right? Bearing up manfully under pain of torture shows grit and determination. Uh, now, if you think back to our first saga, Andy, like way, way back, mm -hmm. uh, Hravenkel was tortured by Sion the lawyer after being outlawed. Hravenkel and his men were cut behind the muscles of their legs and hanged up by ropes threaded through the wounds. Of course I remember that. How could I forget? Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think we decided that it was their Achilles tendons. Yeah. Um, it's a gruesome scene. Yeah, and Hrofenkel did ask for his men to be released, but he asked for nothing for himself, and he bore up quite well under the circumstances. Yeah. That whole sequence was pretty grim, but also very unusual. Yes. Um, I don't know that we've seen any other episodes to top that one. Um, and if you want to read Hrofenkel's saga as the story of a man who grows and overcomes his initial bad behavior, as many like to do, 
mm-hmm. including myself. I know you do. Rovenkell's self-possession in that particular moment is is really a turning point. Right. I'm not going to restart that argument right now. Uh, <laughs> we, can, we can put a couple of resources up on the website for people who are interested in the subject of uh, torment in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stefan Hall has an article about this called Last Laughs. Uh, William Ian Miller has written about it as well. Yeah, he just uh, published a book on Rovenkell's saga. Yep, yep. Uh, so yeah, uh, not that he actually faces torture because he escapes that night, but Ail's composure in the face of this treatment is probably meant to be impressive. Hmm. Also, uh, Ail actually has the moral high ground. Yeah, well, it's not as useful as actual high ground, but even so, mm. moral superiority is hardly a sure thing at that point, right? I mean, we've we've already talked about the random killing that Ail and his Viking crew were doing on this raid. Right, but torture is still a bit beyond the pale. Well, that's agreed. Uh, but the other side of the equation, I mean, if we're still thinking about this through the lens of Drengskopper. Well, it's hard that, to imagine that this is not involving Drengskopper. Sure, no, understood. But I'm thinking about the torturer now. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. There, there's some signs that mutilation of one's enemy was an occasional feature in medieval Iceland. Uh, we see that in Sturlunga mm-hmm. Saga, for example. But, right, uh, right. It's largely absent from the family sagas. We don't see torture I mean, very much. There are a few examples. Uh, your thingman, Halford Halfredersen, comes to mind. Uh, remember, he made a habit of half-blinding people. Made himself a little collection of eyes. Yeah, but that wasn't really torture. Okay, it was mutilation, but still mm-hmm. not really torture. Halford's victims were free to fight back, and they were being attacked for a wrong that they'd done. Right, I mean, that's a somewhat fine line, but okay. So torture of the sort that Sjálm inflicts on Hravenkel mm-hmm. is generally barred from saga narratives. And yes. in part because it's an outrage against honorable behavior. You don't do yeah. that kind of thing. Right. But maybe I mean, maybe it depends on how we define torture. Right? There's a few words in Old Norse that can be used here, including uh, pinna, pinda, kvelja, ogna, and mistrumma, uh, which are all different registers of cruel treatment. And that's anything from threatening someone to abusing them to torture. In Eil's saga, the word the farmer's son uses here is kvelja, which might be torture or it might be torment. If we think of it as torment, I guess it becomes less about using red-hot pliers and more about subjecting an enemy to I guess, physical or even psychological distress. Uh-huh. And that's something fa- several family sagas do include. Sure. I mean, if we're thinking about it that way, I want to be clear that it does seem like the farmer's son is thinking fondly of red-hot pliers. Yeah, at least as, but, as we read it. Yeah. I mean, But if we're thinking of torment instead... We've seen some doozies. Uh, what about uh, Killer Scuta and his Island of Horrors? <laughs> the Island of Horrors. Definitely an awful place. Uh, so I'm sure you remember, there's, there's a section in Rekdala Saga when Scuta's enemies sent an outlaw to assassinate him. I do remember, yeah. The assassin's name was Grim. Oh, yes. Thank you. Very good. I, w- I would have trouble pulling that name out. Grim. So Scuta beats It's always Grim. Grim. Uh, <laughs> the island is Grim. Uh, Scuta beats Grim, then rows him out to a rock island, strips the outlaw naked, and leaves him tied to a stake to die of exposure and insect bites. Mm. It's a horrible way to go. The worst. And that turns out to be a somewhat of a habit with Scooter. He does leave another mm-hmm. guy on the same rock a year later. Yes. Um, Carriel and Gate has an article, uh, The Naked and the Dead in Old Norse Society. Uh, and it's about this exact idea. The motif of humiliation of an enemy by stripping them, either before or after death. Uh, and, and she thinks it has the same overtones as trying to rob a person of honor. Uh, she talks, actually, about uh, Bjorn the Hitterdal champion stripping his enemy Thord, which we were just talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Although I, the text is a little ambiguous about what's happening there. Yeah, I, I don't really recall reading it that way. Bjorn yeah. took Thord's armor and weapons, but I'm not sure about stripping him to the skin. He definitely didn't do that. No, I think she says it's implied. Right? It requires a bit of reader inference. Uh, 
but the Scuda episodes are much clearer examples, in the case of Grimm in particular. Yeah, so to sum this up, torture is very rare in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Tormenting and humiliating an enemy isn't normal, but it, it's more common at least. And deliberate uh-huh. mutilation is uncommon, but not unheard of. Uh, yeah, pretty much. This is a cheerful conversation, isn't mm, it? Uh, just what we now, needed. Obviously, this can all shade into a discussion of things like the Blood Eagle, which we covered in our very first saga brief. And we'll put links to those articles and books on the site in case anyone really wants to do a deep dive on this stuff. We've got a little bibliography section for Ale Saga on our website. Uh, Okay, so what's next? Um, Well, I think we'll just leave it there, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We are worn out at the end of this long conference, and we've got homes to fly back to. Uh, (laughs) We will answer some of your... Oh, and I'm going off on an anniversary uh, vacation, so it's going to be a little while before I get this up. Yeah. I've still um, got a pile of uh, a pile of exams to grade. I've got all kinds of things to do. I was so glad to get that done. My oh goodness. gosh! Yeah. But uh, we will answer some of your questions from the listener rune sack next time. Uh, so keep sending those great questions. I've got a few already. Yeah. Uh, now, while we're ready to follow the adventure of Ale and Thorolf in England, you can get in touch with us to let us know what you thought of this part of the story, what you think of the Scotland Grimson's behavior in the North what you think we got right or wrong, whatever else is on your mind. Yeah. And we should also tell people how to actually reach us. Oh, right. <laughs> yes, you can reach us on our Facebook page where we are Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter where we are at Saga Thing Pod or through email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. We also now have an Instagram account where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Um, or you can register for next year's conference in Kalamazoo, wait 11 and a half months, and then ask a question at our panels. Or just find us wandering around the place. Possibly with a beer in hand. Yeah, just possibly. All right, that's it for us. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye for now. I, I burned a good line. It's fine. It's fine. Just like a house. It's fine. <laughs> Sometimes I just want to give up, really. Oh, my God. I'm clearly not good enough for this. <laughs>